questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight we discuss one of the most baffling and most publicized cases of a close encounter of the second kind. At 11 p.m. on November 2nd, 1957, patrolman A.J. Fowler took a call from Pedro Saucedo and Joe Salas. They explained how they had been out driving when a brightly lit, cigar-shaped object had come toward them. As it approached, their engine cut out, then mysteriously restarted again after the object had left. Similar calls followed. This happened around the West Texas town of Levland, USA. Multiple witnesses at multiple locations reported their car stalled at the close approach of the UFO. Over a two-hour period, the object terrorized the witnesses. The Hockley County Sheriff, the Texas Department of Public Safety, and even officers from Rees Air Force Base saw the UFO. A comprehensive investigation has, for the first time, uncovered additional witnesses and reveals the Air Force clandestine attempts to resolve the case without revealing the true nature of the events. The Leveland sightings are not the only time that reports of stole cars and other interaction with the environment was reported. In France and South America in 1954, similar reports were made, many of them including descriptions of creatures from the UFOs. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, Rebounders, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Tonight's special guest is retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Kevin D. Randall who has spent the majority of his life in the study of all aspects of the UFO phenomena. He has actively investigated cattle mutilations, abductions, crash retrievals, and a wide variety of flying saucer sightings. He had traveled extensively during his investigations, interviewed many of the high-profile researchers and hundreds of witnesses to UFO events. He was among the first to review the Project Blue Book files after they were declassified and saw them before the names had been redacted. Randall is a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel who served as a helicopter pilot and aircraft commander in Vietnam and an intelligence officer in Iraq. He served for 14 years in the Air Force on both active duty and the reserve as an intelligence officer. He brings this military insight as well as an advanced education to bear on his study of UFOs. Mr. Randall is the author of many books and the latest is titled Levland. Randall has appeared in dozens of documentaries about UFOs, appeared in hundreds of radio programs, and written dozens of books on the topic. His blog, A Different Perspective, provides insights into some of the most controversial and some of the best UFO sightings. His radio show and podcast airs weekly on the X-Zone broadcast network. This is his second appearance on Veritas. Do a search on our website to find our first interview. Lieutenant Colonel Kevin D. Randall joins us from Eastern Iowa. Hello, Colonel Randall, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? I am great. Thank you, Mel. I appreciate the opportunity, and, and we should point out we are practicing social distancing. <laughs> we definitely are. Obviously not in Eastern Iowa. Even though that we, it sounds like we're not right in the same room, right? But may I call yeah. you Kevin? Yeah, certainly. Excellent. Well, congratulations on the new book. We were discussing that before we started, and I just uh, finished most of it today. And I have to, before we begin, I have to ask you a few generic, generic questions, Kevin. First, I want to ask you, what happened to the acronym UFO, which was used for decades after Flying Saucer, but now we're mostly seeing UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon or Phenomena, coming from the government. Why the change? I think it's just to fool us, to come up with something new. 
I know that back in the 60s and 70s, Carl Lorenzen and Jim Lorenzen at the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization changed the acronym to UAO for Unidentified Aerial Object because of the um, problems with the wording. You know, unidentified flying object suggested an object, suggested it was flying and all sorts of things that implied alien visitation. And so they wanted to come up with something a little more generic. Maybe that was the thought behind UAP, or maybe they just thought, well, we'll fool them by changing it to UAP, and they won't think about UFOs anymore. The perception is these days is that the government is finally taking UFOs or UAPs seriously. Is this an accurate statement? Or, or let's begin with, a, you know, why do you think that they're, they're now taking this seriously, at least the perception for the public? This happened 70 years ago when Kenneth Arnold made his sighting over Mount, not over, but near Mount Rainier, right. Mount Rainier Washington in July of 1947. The government was taking these things very seriously. They didn't know what was going on. They were, according to Ed Ruppelt, who was one time chief of Project Blue Book, said that the Pentagon was in a panic and they didn't know what they were dealing with. They didn't know whether it was our competitors in the world. They didn't know uh, if it was alien. They didn't know anything about it. And they were trying to get answers. And here we are 70 years later doing the same thing. They had some video that may be more uh or, or probably glitches in the electronics they're using because they interface new electronics into some of the fighter planes with a heads-up display. There was a guy and there was a who put a video on YouTube a number of months ago. He hooked up his um, cell phone camera to night vision device and recorded in the night sky, and he got this this sort of golden pyramid-shaped objects, which is one of the things that they were talking about with the videos from the Navy. So it might be some sort of technological glitch like that. Uh, but I think the the problem is they didn't really know what was going on, and uh, the information leaked into the public arena and garnered the interest of some of the uh, members of Congress. And so they uh, are now taking things a little bit more seriously. But as I say, this all happened 70 years ago, and they eventually worked around to the point where, well, it's not our competitors in the world. There's obviously nothing dangerous going on here because they haven't attacked us yet. It may be natural phenomena. We don't know what it is, but we'll just take a step back and relax a little bit. I guess I was referring more to the ridicule factor. Even when I started to this program almost 15 years ago, and I've been probably looking into UFOs since the 70s. You were at this even before you went to Vietnam. But in the 70s and 80s, you saw a lot of ridicule, even until lately. But in the past, I would say two, three years, you see more of a serious tone coming from the media. That's precisely what I was asking. When these things burst on the scene in 1947, you would get headlines in papers. I think it was Kansas had a headline that said, uh, flying saucer seen in 28 states, but not Kansas, because Kansas is a dry state, meaning they didn't have alcoholic beverages. <laughs> well, they had them, but <laughs> not the way other states did. But uh, I, I think that we look at this now today and we see the same thing. There was a sighting on July, July, um, July January 3rd of this year, uh, airline pilot over Georgia in an Airbus. And one of the passengers, or one of the crew members took a uh, video of some lights, which may be reflections, but I find that hard to believe. But neither the witness who made the video nor the captain wanted to report it to the FAA because they were afraid of being ridiculed and, and troubles with their occupation. And we still see that today. The news media at one point had the attitude that they were too sophisticated to believe in flying saucers. And so they would report a story with their tongue in cheek. And I think they were caught a little bit off guard by the Navy verifying that the videos were from uh, the cockpits of fighter planes. Didn't say they were alien spacecraft, merely said that these are authentic videos taken by the equipment in the uh, fighter planes. That may be one of the reasons they took it a little bit more seriously. And they have something like, uh, I think Robert Bigelow there in Las Vegas with his company working into uh, moving us into space and Harry Reid being involved with getting some uh, governmental money funneled to 
Bigelow to look at these things seriously. So that might be part of the reason, but we still see some of the, the ridicule factor going on in the in the news media today. The other thing we have to remember is the news media got very excited about the report that was supposed to come out on June, June 25th. It came out, it was, what, a high school report that would have gotten a C, C minus? Didn't tell us anything, didn't do anything, but they promised to have another report by October 25th, 90 days later. That never came out. So the news media has kind of lost their interest in that respect, too. I think if the news media continued to press like they did up to the point where the uh, June 25th report was uh, supposed to be issued, I think we might have gotten a different reaction. But they have said nothing about October 25th, and that kind of passed Except for me, I think I mentioned it on my blog at one point that, well, we've moved past that a couple of weeks and we still hear nothing. And now we have this congressional mandate for them to create an office to investigate these things seriously. But we had that 70 years ago, not the congressional mandate, but the military, the Pentagon, high ranking officers were ordering these things to be investigated. So I don't see where things have changed all that much. Other than, as you say, the news media seems to be taking it a little bit more seriously than they have been in the past. Well, what you say about investigate, wasn't Project Blue Book an investigation? That was the allegation. Uh, when it started as Project Sign back in 1947, the mandate was to make a serious investigation. They created a estimate of the situation, which is basically a fancy way, intelligence way of saying we made a report and this is what we found and what should we do, and passed it up the chain of command and it went all the way to the chief of staff of the Air Force, General Vandenberg, and he said, no, you guys didn't prove your case. And nearly everybody who worked on that report lost their jobs in the UFO investigation. So the Air Force officers understood what was being said, which was, if you believe in UFOs, your career is in jeopardy. It, and the investigation sort of evaporated at that point until another general asked in around 1950-51 what's going on with the UFO project and was told and was unhappy with it and they brought in Ed Ruppelt who did a legitimate investigation, did the best he could with the limited resources he had but once Ruppelt left in late 52 early 53 it degenerated into a public relations outfit where the people appointed to uh, head up Project Blue Book were rapidly anti-UFO, anti-flying saucer, and their reports reflected that. Uh, the way they uh, ran things, the investigations they conducted, um, they didn't. They would phone people instead of going to see them. If you didn't return their stupid form, which ran what eight or nine pages with a lot of superfluous questions on it, um, then they said your sighting was probably. Uh, unreliable or insufficient data for a scientific analysis. So once you got past uh, late 1952, early 1953, no, Project Blue Book was basically a public relations outfit to explain sightings. You moved in the 1960s, the late 60s, with the Condon Committee, which was the University of Colorado study. Uh, they laid out, the Air Force laid out exactly what they wanted to the University of Colorado before the, the project papers were signed. And it was, you must say something nice about the Air Force investigation. You must find that there is no national security interest, and you must find that further scientific study would be of no value. That was before they investigated and signed the papers. When the Condon Committee ended their investigations, what they found was there's no threat to national security, which turns out to be a lie. They found that the Air Force had done a good job in their investigation, which turns out to be ridiculous, and that there was no reason to investigate it scientifically because nothing new would be learned. One of the reports in the Project Blue Book file was, I'm sorry, in, in the Condon Committee report, was they, they labeled the sighting as a natural phenomenon so rare it had never been seen before or since. And I'm thinking there's some scientific value in trying to chase that thing down. The national security aspect of it, as I say, was was a lie because one of the University of Colorado investigators was in Belt, Montana, Maelstrom Air Force Base, not long after one of the flights of missiles, 10 missiles in their missile field around Maelstrom was shut down by an outside force. This became an issue of national security because something outside was able to dis disable these missiles. 
And if the Soviets found out it could be done, then they would be looking for ways to do it. And that could cripple our entire retaliatory capability. So there was a national security aspect to it, and they knew it. And they still said there was no national security implications here. So, uh, you know, we're, we're back to where we were 70 years ago with seemingly people taking it seriously. The newspapers in 1947, early on, was taking were taking it seriously. And you were getting some interesting uh, um, radio broadcasts as well. But... But over the last, uh, you know, 50 years, 60 years, we've gotten that ridicule factor going on. And it's only recently, it seems, that the news media is taking it a little bit more seriously. But then the next question is, are we being set up? So they say, well, we looked at it seriously and there's nothing to it. Go about your business Uh, like they did a number of years ago, like they've done multiple times. And it's worked every time. From someone I know high in the airline industry. That is one of the subjects pilots are not supposed to talk about UFOs and if they want to keep their job. But you mentioned reflections. You mentioned that is a word that a lot of people use, especially when you know people are, are traveling and filming with their iPhones these days. But I remember the Mexican Air Force sighting at the Bay of Campeche years ago uh, when the media said later that it was reflection coming from oil platform fires. At the time, I was able to schedule an interview with the Mexican Department of Defense. And it was an admiral who was coming to the interview, and he canceled 30 minutes before. But a few days later, I got a letter, and uh, nowhere to be found the words, you know, fires from oil platforms. They basically said, we cannot confirm, nor we can't confirm nor deny what the Air Force saw there. What's your take on that? Typical. If you look at the level land sightings, the Air Force wrote them off as ball lightning. That's the official explanation. Apparently, nobody knows what ball lightning is. Um, I, I think at the time, 1957, when the sightings took place, there was a big debate among physicists whether ball lightning existed or not. And I think oh, that's really great. We're using a, a phenomenon we can't explain and we don't know if it's legitimate to explain a phenomenon that we can't explain and we don't know if it's legitimate. But a ball lightning is typically, what, 18 inches to 24 inches in diameter, you know, a foot and a half to two feet in diameter. It is very short life, 10, 15 seconds. And and that was the explanation for these multiple sightings all around Level Land, Texas. It took place over two hours with the UFO interacting with the environment. This is the kind of thing they've done all along. The Air Force was so busy um, arguing with NICAP about the number of witnesses and NICAP, John, Don Kehoe at NICAP allowed him to get away with changing the course of the discussion to the number of witnesses that people just didn't look beyond that argument to what was really going on there. And we can point to citing after citing after citing where that kind of camouflage or that kind of deception or that kind of deviation can be uh, pointed to. They, they get the information and they point to some ridiculous explanation or they change the direction of the conversation so that the points, the important points are overlooked and dismissed. Let's begin with the Levelin case uh, for the listeners who are not familiar with it. Take us back to November 2nd, 1957. Tell us what happened and why this case is so special. It is special because it is multiple witness. Um, the UFO interacted with the environment, stalling car engines and dimming headlights and filling radios with static. There were witnesses at least 13 separate locations. The sheriff got involved. Law enforcement got involved. The Air Force got involved. What happened was a fellow named Pedro Sacito was driving in his pickup truck toward Level Land and came up, saw something in the sky. And as they approached it, the car, the, the truck engine died. The lights went out. Sacito, who was a Korean War veteran, panicked and dove out of the truck and and rolled underneath it for protection. His passenger sat there staring at the object, which was a bright blue, turned red, shot up into the sky. And once it disappeared, Sacito could get his truck started. He was so afraid of running into it again, they went to a different town and called the sheriff in Leveland to tell him what had happened. And of course, the police uh, response was, well, he's drunk and we don't need to do anything about it. But then other calls began began coming in from all around the Leveland, Texas area. When we go back and we look at that whole period, we see that the sightings began 12, 15 hours earlier up near Amarillo, place named C- Canadian, Texas, uh, Pettit, Texas, all around Leveland, these sightings were being made. 
is basically the same thing, a bright red object close to the ground stalling car engines, stalling the headlights. Once the object is gone, they can restart the cars. What I found in investigating this and looking at it closely, um, the sheriff at Leveland, I don't know whether he talked, he called the, the Air Force, the Air Force called him, but the Air Force became involved in this and sent officers out there. The sheriff, some of the state police, which I think is the Texas Department of Public Safety, and the uh, Air Force went out looking for the UFO and they found it. They got close to it. Although, if you read the Air Force file, it says that Sheriff and his name is Weir Clem. And I hate that name because it just sounds like such a hip name. And, and you know, it, it should be like Jack Armstrong or something with a little bit of macho punch to it or something like that. But um, he told the Air Force days later when the Air Force showed up to investigate for all seven hours that he'd just seen a streak of light in in the sky about 900 yards away. If you look at newspaper reports that were published prior to the Air Force arriving, after the sightings took place, but before the Air Force investigator arrived, the sheriff told people, told the reporters, that uh, he'd seen an object. He called it oval-shaped. It was bright red. The next day, and Don Berlinson, who is a um, UFO researcher and investigator. He teaches at the uh, one of the colleges in the Roswell area, as a matter of fact, interviewed the sheriff's wife um, 20 years ago now. And she said that um, the sheriff got much closer and he was told that the idea that it, the car was stalled came from the sheriff because he went to the police department mechanic and asked him to check out his car. Well, the question is, why would he do that if the car hadn't stalled, which means all three cars probably were close enough for the engine to stall, which means the Air Force officers were close enough for that to happen to them. But you can find no trace of those guys beyond a newspaper article, too, that said the Air Force was with the sheriff when he went out that night to look. The next day, which would be November 3rd, the sheriff and the provost marshal from Reese Air Force Base went out to look for landing sites. And according to the newspapers, they didn't find any. But according to what Burlinson found out, talking to the sheriff's wife, his widow, his daughter, and some of the other people in the area, they found a burned area. So what we now have is a case where we have the UFO interacting with the environment by stalling the cars. We have indirect physical evidence by the burned area, and we have multiple witnesses making independent reports of the same phenomena. That's why Leveland is such an important case. And it didn't end there for the next few days. There were many reports around the desert southwest, particularly of people encountering UFOs in the car stalling, the engine stalling. Uh, one guy named James Stokes over in Oro Grande, New Mexico, which is just a little bit south of Alamogordo, which is, what, 110 miles, 120 miles from Roswell, reported that he and a number of other cars on the highway from, from Alamogordo to El Paso near Oro Grande, the car was stalled. Um, and there were six or seven other cars stalled along the highway, and they saw an object overhead flying on. He uh, reported to uh, a number of people that he had a slight sunburn afterwards. He was checked at the hospital in Alamogordo. The Air Force worked to smear his name. He worked for the Air Force in Alamogordo, and he, he was termed an engineer. And the Air Force says, well, he didn't go to college to become an engineer. Guy had like 29 years of naval service. He was working in a department in the Air Force at Alamogordo, and his job title, in fact, said engineer. And his boss said, yeah, he's an engineer. And the Air Force said, well, he's not an engineer. and We couldn't see the sunburn. And and he got the number of cars al along the highway wrong. He When he drew an illustration of the uh, event, there were only like six cars, but he said seven cars. And there was all kinds of this kind of attempt to smear Stokes' name. But that was another important case that took place like three or four days after the the sightings in Leveland. So it's why it's become such an important case because we have these multiple chains of evidence. We have these multiple independent witnesses and um, we have the interaction with the environment. Wasn't there a court case? I'm not sure if it's related to Leveland, but I forgot what investigator told me about this, but it, it was, uh, I think it was a convertible vehicle and the occupants were just traveling and this object floated above the car and the occupants received the burns, and they took that case to court. Have you ever heard of that case? Well, I think you're talking about the Cash Landrum case. There you go. 
And yes, they did take it to court, but they didn't win um, because they couldn't prove that the Air Force was responsible. You know, if it's an alien spacecraft, well, you can't hold the Air Force responsible. <laughs> if it was a test craft of some kind that was apparently spewing the radiation, um, which I think there was the burns they got were like radiation burns. They had radiation sickness. That's very interesting. They actually, there were the plaintiffs and the defendant, I would presume, was the government or yes. the, the Air Force. So if yes. that's the case, when the, I don't know if it was a jury or a judge who's deliberating, what would they say? The, the problem is you couldn't link it directly to the Air Force. You couldn't prove that this was this the Air Force had acted irresponsibly, that they had done anything wrong. There was no evidence that it was an Air Force aircraft of any kind. Um, the, the, they talked about this big flight of um, Chinook helicopters. And this took place over the Christmas holidays. And I know from being in the military and being a helicopter pilot in the military, over the Christmas holidays, except, of course, when we were in Vietnam, uh, you, you go to a skeleton crew. You have a lot of people on leave, a lot of people not having to report to duty. And yet they're talking about uh, 25 Chinook helicopters. That would call, create a, a huge logistical problem. Where are you going to park all those aircraft? How are you going to refuel them? And you've got at least two pilots and two air crew for each of those craft. Where are you going to house them? And you probably have other maintenance personnel and other people coming in with that many aircraft. It is a, a logistical nightmare to hide that sort of thing. And, and nobody could come up with any evidence for that kind of a, an operation going on at that time of the year. So I think the problem they had was uh, no matter how you sliced it, they could not prove that the Air Force was responsible for their injuries. I hate to be asking you questions that might seem unrelated to the book, but I have to, since you mentioned the Chinook helicopter. Back in uh, the summer, July of 2010 or 2011, I was at the E-SETI ranch in Washington, and I was uh, awoken by this trembling around the house, and I jumped out, and it was a Chinook helicopter hovering above the ranch, probably a few hundred feet above us, and they had this red light pointing down, why would the military, if it was a military aircraft, why would they be doing that in a residential area? Well, I know as a helicopter pilot who, when I got out of Vietnam, we came home and I was joined the Iowa National Guard as a helicopter pilot. So we had uh, training flights that we had to take all the time. A funny story, in one of the training flights, uh, one of the farmers, because this was a time back when they were talking about cattle mutilations and that sort of thing, and cattle rustling going on using helicopters. One of the farmers came out and was shooting at us. And one of the pilots says, you're not going to believe this, but we're taking fire. And I'm thinking, yeah, let's return fire for fire received and see what happens. But, but of course, we didn't. But I, I don't know what kind of mission they might have been on or what they were doing. Um, I There are civilian versions of the of the Chinook. It may have been a civilian aircraft. I don't know. I just don't know. Um, FAA regulations, if I remember correctly, and it's been a long time since I've had to review the FAA regulations, I think it required to be at least 500 feet over any structure. So you, if you were below 500 feet without the permission of the people on the ground or without special permission from the FAA, you're in violation of the FAA regulations. Okay. So I don't know what they might have been doing or what they were looking for. Good to know. Well, let's talk about the electromagnetic effect, because that really fascinates me. Through the years, we've heard the stories of car engines shutting down, just like what happened in Leveland, uh, clock stopping, etc., when a sighting is taking place. Was Leveland the case that brought the theory of electromagnetic interference to the forefront? It was a case that was very important in looking at that sort of thing. Prior to Level Land, there had been cases of electromagnetic effects reported. I think the first case goes back to 1909 in England, where a motorcyclist claimed that his headlight went out as he approached a field with a glowing orb in it. And when the orb had disappeared, the headlight came back on. So that would be the first of the electromagnetic cases. Uh, Len Stringfield, who was... Um, uh, one of the big names in ufology uh, in the last century, and I say it that way because he passed away in, I think, 1994, he was on an aircraft that was flying from Iwo Jima to Japan right after the end of the war. And the, he was in the Army as an intelligence NCO, and they were moving a bunch of those people into the into 
I think Tokyo for whatever they were doing. So the war was over, but his aircraft was approached by three glowing objects. And uh, one of the engines began to sputter and miss. And then the other one, it's a C-47, a twin engine aircraft. The other one started to do it. And the pilot came on and said, you know, be prepared. We're going to have to ditch. But the objects moved away and the engines started functioning properly again. And they, they went on their way. So there were some cases prior to 1957 when this whole thing exploded in Europe. 1954, and I think in South America as well that year, there were quite a few cases of this sort of thing. It didn't get a lot of play in the United States simply because it was European cases and it was South American cases. But there were uh, quite a few cases in, in that time frame. And in the book, there's a long compendium of, of um, electromagnetic cases and some of the strange things that, that they cause. In the in the text of the book, I looked specifically at car stalling and that sort of thing. But when we get back into this compendium, I was looking at animals being affected by UFOs. Close approach to the UFOs sometimes affect animals greatly. Um, there was, I think there's four cases of cars actually changing color when they get close, had a close approach of a UFO. And the one that really kind of cracked me up, I think the guy had a gray car or maybe a green car. I forget the color now. But he came home after his encounter, and his wife thought he'd bought a new car because the paint had changed. There's a limited number of those cases. There's there's only four of them, but uh, there is some documentation for that as well. So there's these electromagnetic effects, uh, I guess, cover a, a wide variety of sins. Um, so you have to take a look at all of that together and wonder about it. It's also interesting, the Condon Committee, when they investigated, they investigated two cases, I think, of cars allegedly stalling by close approach to UFOs. And I, I, I say it that way simply because um, the one, one of the cases, the woman wasn't um, – her car wasn't in good repair. And some of the things that she reported as a result of this close encounter with the UFO may have been mechanical prior to the to the UFO. But the Condon Committee dismissed the whole idea because they said that uh, they could think of no way that you could suppress the electro flow, electronics, well, the electrical, electrical flow of a car engine to stall the car engine and then remove that field and the car engine would spontaneously restart. And I got to looking at the cases, and I noticed one thing that very few of them do the people report the car restarted spontaneously. There are some where they do. But in the majority of the cases, you see the driver took some action. And in the Level Land case, most of them said, well, once the UFO was gone, I was able to restart my car or the car restarted normally or the car began to function normally, things like that. Only in one of the cases in Level Land did the guy say the engine started restarted spontaneously. So the conduct committee rejected these ideas simply because they could think of no reason for the removal of an electromagnetic field strong enough to stall the car engine that removal of that field would car, cause the start, car to start spontaneously. And yet that seems to be somewhat of a misnomer. So we've got a wide variety of different um, electromagnetic effects. Uh, I also in the book talk about radio stations being knocked off the air by a close approach of a UFO, people's uh, television broadcast being interrupted by UFOs flying over. So there's a wide range of these things, and they all are suggestive of a very strong electromagnetic field. It was almost like a thunderclap, almost as if it's creating a static field around it. What do you think creates this? Is this just the nature of the object, or is this some kind of weaponry? I don't think it's weaponry. I think if it's related to anything, I think it's related to the propulsion. Mm. But it's not universal. It's very, it's, I would say very rare, but it's not very rare. It's rare uh, of the thousands of UFO reports that we log each year, just a handful of them, a few dozen might report an electromagnetic effect. One thing I've noticed recently, and I'm, I'm trying to assemble some data on this, is people, when they see a UFO, they, they whip out their cell phones. Well, I shouldn't say that. They probably got them in their hands. But they point the the cell phone at the object and they try to videotape it, or video it, and the the cell phone malfunctions. They don't get a good picture or they just get audio. They can't get um, the video working. And I've noticed that in a number of cases. And so I've begun to explore that a little 
uh, more carefully to see exactly how widespread that is. Because one of the criticisms about UFO sightings is that, well, everybody's got a camera in their hand now. How come we don't have some better video? And that might be part of the reason. But the other thing I always say is, yeah, they've got it in their hand and they're looking down. They're not looking up into the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do have the problem when some people do try to video the um, the UFOs, the cameras fail. And uh, there's some very good cases. And, and the other thing that I noticed in many of the cases, the video fails, but the sound continues. So it's almost, yeah, I don't want to say that because it just, it, it sounds wrong, but it, it just seems like the, they are capable of disabling the cameras. Do you think they can disable the cameras, the, the newer cameras, mobile phones and, and electronic cameras or digital cameras rather, as opposed to the usual analog ones we used to have before with a roll? Well, I would think, I would think if you've got a mechanical camera that there's no way that electromagnetic effect would stop you from taking pictures. Right. Um, unless the camera has magnetic metals in it. And I don't think they were making making cameras with, with those kind of metals in it. I think they're pretty much anti-magnetic. But uh, I think part of the problem is, yeah, it used to be we had a mechanical device to take the pictures. Now it's all digitized and electronic. And that may part be part of the problem. But then again, the UFO has to be close enough for the, the electromagnetic field to affect the, the camera or affect the car or something like that. Uh, because there are people who say, well, as I approached the thing, my car was running smoothly. And as I got closer, the engine died and um, the lights went out. There was a case around Level Land. I think it's the one from Canadian, Texas. No, I think it's no, I'm sorry. It's Amarillo, which is a little bit north of, of Canadian and, and further north from Level Land, where a couple approached an object sitting in the road and the car engine died and they couldn't get it restarted because the battery was fried. So some somehow the battery was affected by the close approach of the UFO. That too is a rarity. You see that happen once in a while. And you see other damage to the cars. Um, uh, one guy reported that the rear window of his convertible had been affected by the UFO. And I think anybody who's had a convertible realizes that you've got a plastic window back there as opposed to a glass. Well, some of them have glass, but a plastic window. So somehow that plastic window is affected. Uh, one guy talked about the um, tapes, uh, music tapes in his car being wiped clean. Um, other people have talked about the clock stopping for uh, a period of time. And then when the UFO is gone, the clock begins to work. So they've got an idea of how long the object was in in close range. So we look at all of those sorts of things and try to put it together. But uh, the real problem is for those of us like me who are civilian UFO researchers, we have no um, authority to get people to answer answer to us. If it was the FBI, we'd go and say, well, the FBI, you better talk to us and you're in big trouble. But with the UFO investigator civilians, a lot of times people don't want to talk to you. They, they're, they're afraid of the ridicule, as we talked about. They're afraid of uh, what their neighbors will think of them. Uh, they're reluctant to talk to us. And so often you have to say, well, you know, your name won't be associated with the case. When Project Blue Book was operating, you know, they would get the names of the witnesses. The Air Force could show up and the people would talk to them, of course. When the Blue Book Bill, Blue Book files were declassified, the uh, before they were released into the National Archives, the public arena, a number of Air Force officers went through every case file taking out the names of the witnesses. They did a really crummy job, I might add, because normally I can put the names back in. Uh, the one that always cracked me up was the Kenneth Arnold sighting. And they even went to the point of crossing out his initials in a transcript of an interview with him. So instead of saying, you know, J.A. for K.A. for Kenneth Arnold, they crossed that out. And yet at the beginning of the transcript in grease pencil and letters that had to be a half inch high, it said Arnold sighting. So you knew which sighting it was. Oftentimes there's newspaper articles and the names will be in the newspaper articles. Sometimes they block them out. Sometimes they don't. If you read the files carefully, oftentimes they've missed the name once in a while. So you can put the names back in. Rarely have I come across a file where they redacted the names that I could not find the name somewhere. I do have um, one of the articles I'm being working working on now, which doesn't relate to you uh, to um, 
electromagnetic effects. But Dr. Lincoln La Paz, who was a scientist at the University of um, New Mexico in Albuquerque, who was the director of their department of meteorics, I think he actually created a lot of meteor samples in in, in their display in in, in uh, at the um, university. There's a sighting that he had. It's published in the 1952 article in Life magazine, and it says the magazine, uh, you know, he's a scientist, and he requested we not use his name. Well, I now know it's Dr. Lincoln La Paz, and since he is now long gone, it's not going to harm his reputation to say that he had a UFO sighting. Um, so, uh, you know, that's one of the things that we run into as we try to uh, investigate the the UFO cases. But there's a, such a wide range of stuff going on, it's hard to get the information and get everything you need to make a good solid case from the outside looking in. I can see how electromagnetism can affect a car that operates uh, with a battery and electronic parts uh, components. But a watch, I'm always wondering, unless it was a digital watch, which back in those days I doubted, but why, what is, what's causing the watch to stop? Well, you remember a lot of watches would say they were anti-magnetic. They were made with no parts that had magnetic um, properties. Right. But some watches did. So if you got too close to an electromagnetic field uh, or a strong magnet, okay, uh, it would it would stop it would stop the watch or it would wreck the watch. It wouldn't work anymore. Um, so I, I think you have to look at that. When you begin talking about an electronic device, then you can suppress the electronic field as it operates. Um, the question I always had is, does the electromagnetic pulse, you know, if you detonate an atomic bomb, there's this electromagnetic pulse set out that fries all the electronics. But if you've got a car made in the 50s, will it still operate? Because it's got a carburetor. It right. doesn't have the digital fuel injections and all of that stuff, you know. But we're talking about cars from the 1950s being stalled by the flying saucer. So it would suggest that when the field is present, the car will not operate. But when the field is removed, then you should be able to operate the car. In, in the cars that you buy today, once the field is removed, you've probably fried some of the electronics and it probably won't work. So that's just my theories on that. Well, the way things are these days, that's the type of car I'd like to have uh, right now because – I think it's from the 80s or 90s till till now. We have planned obsolescence taking place. Uh, but, you know, you have one of those old cars with a carburetor and spark plugs and so on. And that's the type of car I like to have. But let me go back for a second. Just again, another quick parenthesis. I'm always fascinated by the July 1952 flyover Washington. It happened two consecutive Saturdays. What do you think happened there? And what was the, the government response eventually? Well, you know, I wrote a book about that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thank, thank you for allowing me to get that in. It was called <laughs> Invasion Washington. It's you know, 20 years old now. Uh, and it, these sightings over Washington, D.C. resulted in what I thought of the greatest headline I've ever seen in a newspaper. It's right out of a science fiction movie. It's Cedar Rapids Gazette, front page, banner headline, Saucer Swarm Over Capital. Love that headline. But what you had was, um, as you said, on two consecutive Saturday nights, but there had been a lot of other sightings around that time going on. It was building up to these sightings. Um, the, the, the objects were spotted on radar at Washington National Airport. I think it's the right, run Reagan National Airport now. Uh, and they watched the objects. Um, fighters were scrambled to intercept them on a couple of couple of times. They never got close or the UFOs all disappeared. Um, airline pilots were seeing them. People on the ground were seeing them. Um, the UFOs appeared on three separate radars. And I think that two of the radars may have been using the same radar feed at that national airport, both the control tower and the um, air traffic control center, I think were using the same radar feed. So that might not be really separate radars. But the, the third radar was at Bowling Air, not Bowling Air Force Base, uh, Andrews Air Force Base. So you had it on multiple radars as well. You had people seeing it. They would go outside and look, and yeah, there's the UFO where it's supposed to be. I talked to Al Chop and Dewey Fournay. Now, Al Chop at the time was the um, public relations guy dealing with UFOs at the Pentagon, and, and Dewey Fournay was the liaison between the Pentagon and uh, Project Blue Book, both in Washington, D.C. So on the second Saturday night when the sightings took place, they got calls, and they went to the Air Traffic Control Center at Washington National Airport. So they were in the radar room watching the things go on. And uh, 
both of them told me that, you know, it was interesting that when the fighters would show up, the UFOs would disappear, except for one sighting that got very hairy. And one of them, and I forget who it was, wouldn't tell me what it was, wouldn't tell me a thing about the sighting. And when I talked to the other guy, he says, you know, Al Chop told me about this other sighting. And he and, and Dewey Fournier said, well, yeah, that was the one where the, the airplane was sort of surrounded. So I got the information by an old reporter's trick of pretending I knew much more than I did because I could uh, I had a little bit of information. But there was a sighting like that. It was reported in the newspaper, um, I think, uh, the next day or a day or two later about the intercept. The guy's name was Patterson, I believe, uh, talking about how he had been sort of surrounded by the UFOs. Uh, onboard radar from the fighters, of course, uh, picked up the objects once or twice, too, although they couldn't seem to find them. Uh, the Air Force decided after a massive, massive press conference held after the second series of sightings, it was it was dubbed the most uh, it was the biggest press conference held by the military since the end of the Second World War. Now that that's probably changed now, but that that was a 1952. That was the deal. And General um, General Ramey from Roswell fame was there, and uh, General Sanford couldn't remember his name for a moment. General Sanford was the Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence. He was there running sort of the, the press conference. Uh, um, conspicuous bias absent was Ed Ruppelt. He was not there, and he should have been down from, from Dayton, Ohio, to, to be there as well, but he wasn't there. They concluded that there was a temperature inversion over the Washington, D.C. area at the time. And a temperature inversion is where a level a layer of cold air is actually above a level of warm air, and it creates a a uh, bending effect for electronic beams. It's like when you stick a, a, a pencil in, in water and you can see it sort of bend because of the refraction in the in the water. And a temperature inversion creates that kind of refraction. And they were saying, well, what they were doing was picking up things on the ground that weren't, weren't really in the sky. Uh, and so that was their explanation. It was temperature inversions. Um, very unsatisfactory answer because then you have to explain, well, yeah, but there's pilots who intercepted these things. One of the pilots for, I think it was Capital Airlines at the time, his name was uh, Casey, and he uh, was directed by his company uh, that there was something on the radar. Could he see it? And so he kept, uh, kept an eye on it as he was doing his route from Washington, D.C., or wherever he was going or where he was coming back from to Washington, D.C. So he kept his eye on some of the objects. So they were saying, there's, a rate, there's an object here, and he'd say, yeah, I've got it in sight. The skeptics will tell you there's always uncorrelated product, product, um, objects on the radar set. And, uh, you know, so these guys seeing these strange things in the sky, you know, it's just, just really irrelevant type stuff. Um, the explanation doesn't work very well at all. The sightings, I think, are another series of very good sightings because you have sightings at multiple locations by multiple independent witnesses. You have them on radar, which is another type of um, evidence. And then you have the attempted intercepts by aircraft. The sad thing is the aircraft had to come from Bowling Air Force Base rather than Andrews, because Andrews was having the runways repaved at the time, and they were calling in the fighters from outside the Washington, D.C. area. And so they had a limited time on station. It took them a little bit of time to get there, and they had to have enough fuel to get home, of course. But we did have attempted intercepts, which failed with one or two exceptions. We had radar locks from the uh, fighters on object as well. So it's a very good set of sightings. By the way, Kevin, I did not know that you have written. I knew you wrote many books, but not this many. And I'm looking here at the Invasion Washington UFOs over, over the Capitol. And by the way, I didn't know that you actually, you were in two different branches of the military, Air Force and Army. I did not know that. Well, you can actually you can actually expand it to four if you count the National Guard. National Guard. Reserve. So I, I was on active duty in the Army. I was in the National Guard after I got back from Vietnam and going to college. The Air Force offered me a, a jet to fly if I'd take ROTC. And since I'd been a warrant officer but not a commissioned officer, I could, I could take the last two years of ROTC and then I'd be commissioned into the Air Force, which is what I did. And I served on active duty for a while. Then I went into the Air Force Reserve, got done with that. And then after 9-11, I joined the National Guard again and deployed to Iraq. So... Uh, yes, I was on <laughs> many, many cats I wore in the military. Well, thank you for your service, first of all. The the Levelland, 
electro electromagnetic effects. Obviously, that's a, it's a it's an important aspect of this case. But this is not the only case. You also quote some others, a multitude actually, of cases from France and South America in 1954. Can you tell us more about those? Well, it's, it's, it's similar to what we saw in Leveland, where um, cars were affected, cars were stalled, or um, electrical devices were, were inhibited. The one I think of is a guy who was um, um, in France and, and was outside and saw something in the distance, and he landing on the railroad tracks, and he went out to take a look at it. And uh, there were some creatures some beings pointed something at him and caused paralysis, which, which is a factor in the in the French and South American sightings that you saw frequently, but you didn't see it very often in the the sightings in the United States. There are some cases where people felt paralyzed, but more prevalent in in Europe and uh, South America. Um, and then eventually the object, the the, the 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 beings scampered back into the craft. It took off, and once it was gone, he was able to move again. Uh, it was investigated by the police, and they found landing traces on the railroad tracks where an object that they estimated weighed 30 tons had landed. So, um, you know, again, multiple chains of evidence, uh, interaction with the environment, causing causing a, not really physical harm, but causing sort of a, a temporary paralysis on the part of the witness. And so you, you see that sort of thing in the cases, other cases in, in that arena as well, where the animals reacted to it. I think one woman talked about her dog reacting strangely to it, and then other animals in the area did the same thing. Um, and we, we see some of that in the United States as well, where we have that sort of um, activity. I, I brought all of that up to show that this is not a phenomenon related simply to level land in 1957, but this is something that has been seen throughout basically the history of the UFO phenomenon um, since, as I mentioned earlier, 1909 uh, up to the present day. And um, I just looked at a number of cases from the last um, few months into a year ago of electromagnetic effects affecting car engines or cell phones or uh, animal reactions to them. So it's something that is ongoing, but it's not it's not common to most UFO sightings. They don't have those sorts of things. Many of the sightings, of course, are the craft in the distance and aren't close enough. But even some of the close approaches, you do not have that same sort of electromagnetic effect, which suggests obviously different types of craft flying, whether it's a um, single race of entities or it's multiple entities, I don't know. I've always said that, you know, you know they, people say, well, we got all these different shapes from UFOs. And I said, yeah, if I go look at an Earth-based aircraft carrier, there's many different types of aircraft on that aircraft carrier. You know, it, it, you've got helicopters, you've got jet fighters with swing wings, you've got propeller planes, You've got the always oh, at the P3 with the big radar dome on top. Um, so you would have if, if people didn't know what the aircraft carrier was or what airplanes were and they were describing it, they would give us many different descriptions of the airplane simply because there are many different types of aircraft on the aircraft carrier, depending on the mission of those specific aircraft. And that's one country only. If you look at uh, aircraft carriers for other countries, you'll see multiple you know differences as well. So why can't we say? If these beings come from, I hate to say extraterrestrial coming from another planet, because let me just present this to you. Lately, I've been asking this question a lot, Kevin. If more than 80% of our ocean is unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored, why is the first reaction to a UFO encounter to say they come from space? Why not the ocean? Why not uh, another piece of unexplored land on this planet or even below? I'm just curious about your thoughts on this question. A lot of the sightings show them at very high altitudes coming in, and they there are there is a phenomenon known as uh, USOs under undersea objects, right? Um, and there's there's talk about bases underneath the oceans as well. I've never really delved into that in any great depth. I've always been more of a land-based kind of guy, uh, looking at. Specific kinds of cases. You know, I got sucked into the Roswell case 30 years ago, and still I'm talking about that and looking at things like the Leveland case. So I, there are others who look at the undersea 
versions of the UFOs. But I've always thought of it as extraterrestrial based on the operating principles and the way they they maneuver through the air and the way they are seen to take off straight up and disappearing into the sky and that sort of thing. So I've always thought of them as as um, being off world. You mentioned Roswell. 1947. What is it going to be? 75 years now? This year. That's right. 75 years. What do you really think happened in Roswell? Boy, you know, I've gone back and forth on that. I've just completed a book called, well, I haven't completed. I got to finish proofreading two chapters um, called Understanding Roswell and look at the case in depth. I did a book a number of years ago called Roswell in the 21st Century, which I kind of examined it as a close case, uh, cold case. And in this book, I'm looking at it from the point of view, what do we, what do we know, what, what do we understand about the Roswell case? There is no current plausible terrestrial explanation for what happened. Everybody agrees something fell. Everybody agrees the military recovered it. The Air Force did us a real favor in 1995 when they eliminated everything with the exception of their Project Mogul nonsensical answer. We'd already done that, and I say we, I'm thinking of Don Schmidt, Tom Carey, and me. We'd already eliminated all of that. We'd been to the White Sands. We had copies of all the missile firings that would have been relevant to the time. We had all kinds of documentation. We could find no aircraft accidents or anything that was relevant to the Roswell area in 1947. We could find no experimental aircraft that would count. The Air Force did the same thing and said that none of those answers worked. All they could come up was with Project Mogul, which was they said highly classified project so classified even the guys working on it in new mexico didn't know the name that turned out not to be true because i've got a copy of albert crary's diary he was the uh, leader of the balloon project in new mexico and the name mogul appears in his diary three or four times so obviously he knew the name what they were doing in mexico new mexico wasn't classified they were launching regular weather balloons with raywan raywan targets on them it was a, a um an array of balloons, and they were trying to create a constant level balloon that would stay in the atmosphere at a specific level for a long period of time with the idea of spying on the Soviets. That was what was classified, the fact they were going to spy on the Soviets. But what they were doing in New Mexico wasn't classified. In fact, pictures of one of the arrays appeared in the newspapers on July 10th, 1947. So it wasn't much of a, of a secret. So all of that being said, every terrestrial explanation I know of has been eliminated. Is that sufficient to say, well, it's extraterrestrial? Some people would say yes. I say I would like something a little more solid than drawing the conclusion based on the lack of any terrestrial explanation. There still may be something that was classified that we don't know about that would explain Roswell. In 1947, as a matter of fact, the size and shape of the atomic bomb was classified so that if you... um, saw one of those, you had to have a clearance. I mean, you had to have a, a security clearance. In Roswell, which was the only um, force in the world at the time that had a atomic capability, their B-29, some of them had mod- been modified to carry the atomic bomb, and they were called silver plate B-29, so that, that's kind of a clue. And uh, the atomic bomb, I think, if I remember the dimensions right, was about 13 feet long and five feet in diameter. It was huge. The dimensions, the look of it was classified. If they had accidentally dropped a practice atomic bomb um, in New Mexico, they would have tried to recover it without people seeing it because it was classified. But by this point in time, you can look up, I think it's the MK3 atomic bomb, and you can find pictures of it on the Internet. So it's clearly not classified. So had that been the expl- explanation in 1947, um, I think we would know that by now. Uh, we looked into that and couldn't find anything to suggest that the uh, 509th bomb group had inadvertently dropped the practice atomic bomb somewhere. And in fact, there's other places where they actually dropped real live atomic bombs, and we know about those. One dropped in uh, 1957 in Albuquerque, I think, in the area of Albuquerque, and I think two fell in the ocean off Spain in um, the 1960s or early 70s, sometime in that time frame. So we know about those. Um, So when we eliminate all of that sort of thing, the only thing we're left with is the extraordinary, which would be some kind of an extraterrestrial craft. I favor the extraterrestrial as opposed to the interdimensional or the time traveling. Although I say this with trepidation, um, I, 
I, I, I love the time travel aspect of it because that makes for really great science fiction stories and stuff like that. I don't believe, I don't believe time, time travel is possible based on a number of things, but uh, I don't think that's, that's the explanation. Interdimensional, I think, is a, more likely than time travel, and of course, the overwhelming mo most likely explanation is extraterrestrial. So what I'm saying is a long-winded way of saying I think Roswell is probably extraterrestrial, but I'd like to see a little more in the way of evidence before I, I jump completely and totally into that corner. And I appreciate that. Of course, let's not forget that the government said eventually crash test dummies, which had not been developed at the time, and then weather balloon. But uh, we have to take a one and only break. But before doing that, let me just say, speaking of Roswell and New Mexico, I had uh, planned to visit Roswell this summer to meet uh, Clifford Stone, and he passed away last year. And also another friend passed away a few days ago who I wanted to take with me to Roswell this summer, the great researcher and probably one of the best illustrators. And I'm sure everyone in this field has can identify his paintings. I'm referring to Jim Nichols, who passed away a few days ago. So I'd like to dedicate this episode to Clifford Stone and Jim Nichols, both former military and very good researchers. Kevin, how can people learn more about your work and buy your books, read your blog, etc.? Of course, the books are available at Amazon. Just type in my name and a list of books will come up. If you type in Eric Helm, you'll get a bunch of uh, action-adventure books that I wrote with a friend, uh, Bob Cornett, about, obviously, Vietnam. Uh, the blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. It's called A Different Perspective, and if you type in different A Different Perspective, sometimes that comes up on the search engines as well. And if you type in www.vietnamgroundzero, all one word, all lowercase.blogspot.com, you'll, uh, you'll find uh, some of my reminiscences of what my experiences were like in Vietnam. We're here with retired Lieutenant Colonel Kevin D. Randall. One more hour to come as we continue with this very important case, Levelant in Texas. This is Mel Hostelrick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, Proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. Sent back to their superior someplace else. 
The evidence seems to be overwhelming to me. Because we've had an intimate relationship with them several thousand years. I have concluded, as has Zechariah Sitchin, that the human race has probably been seeded here by high intelligence civilizations from other places. I think those who placed us here and those who have been intimately involved with our genetic manipulation of the program are interested in us. I think they are related to us. And I think that that's why they're so involved. Mr. Sitchin, 